And welcome back to another episode of the Picket Fence Podcast. Cam, how you doing, man? Uh, doing pretty well. Uh, I'm really excited for this episode because we have so many different fun basketball topics. Uh, I'm glad we're getting back into a rhythm of, of doing this more often and not those long breaks. There's so many different topics to cover last time. <laughs> but there's pretty exciting news in the basketball world, so... Uh, I'm glad to be doing it today. How about you? Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of nice to get back in a little bit of swing of this and uh, kind of dissect things maybe on a, a weekly or bi-weekly basis versus having to talk about the first half of the NBA season all at once. So, yeah. Uh, but understood, you've got a whole lot on your plate and a lot going on here. Again, still in the middle of the high school basketball season and you've had uh, what, a couple of cancellation games and things like that. So Yeah, for sure. You guys have been all over the place and slowly starting to wind yourself down you're almost almost a sectional time so yeah just a couple more weeks and you talk about having a lot on my plate i've got uh, jack benner on my plate on saturday so that'll be a tough one to to deal with yeah looking at your uh, schedule you got a, you've got it's a busy weekend place and it's probably going to be do i said so you've got a busy weekend yeah for sure uh saturday will probably be a packed house it is at our place but you know even though it's it's a stressful one to prep for with a team that good and a player that good, it's exciting just to be able to – I'm excited to watch that kid play. I mean, I know it's going to be against us, and I know we're trying to stop him as best we can. But um, it's always fun to see a kid that's a Mr. Basketball candidate that's going to go be a Purdue Boilermaker, and I'm sure we will have standing room only at Court and Central. Yeah, and there's there's a few gyms in southern Indiana that I really enjoy playing in, but a Pat Corden gym, uh, at least when I was playing and then um, coaching, and as you know, coaching down there at Corden – you know, when you get a, a full house in Corden's gym, it gets pretty loud. It gets noisy. Uh, you get a good student section that shows up, and that place can be a whole lot of fun. It can be a really good experience. Absolutely. We've got kind of that uh, walkway on the second level of our gym, and fans kind of <clears> tend to hang over that or when you were playing. I'm sure yeah. you felt that, too. It felt like they sure were hanging over the, the, the edge there. And so it's, it's a fun gym to be in when it's packed. I know Brownstown Central is packed pretty much every gym. Um, I've got to catch them on YouTube a few times just because they're streaming so yeah. many games because people can't get into it. And they're, they're must-watch. I mean, it's funny. You know, saying a high school team's must-see TV pretty much at this point. You know, with the, all those games streaming, they are must-see TV. They're a super fun team. Um, I'm hoping that they can, you know, they're not in our sectional, so I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> I, I just wish them the best of luck. Right. We'll have to see them come tournament time, but – I bet they're going to make a, a really great run, and, and they are sure a fun team to watch. Yeah, well, and you guys, looking at your schedule, you don't get to – it's not like you get a, a Friday night to, you know, play somebody and get a win Friday night and roll right into a Saturday game to a little bit extra prep. You've got a, a, t- a tall task on your hands on Friday night too. So the weekend yeah. – for the, the Friday and Saturday doubleheader for the Corden Central Panthers is uh, a tall task to say the least. Nothing to, to you know – scoff at or anything like that you guys have a paoli team that's playing really well right now has a couple of really nice players uh you know fletcher cole is one of the better point guards in southern indiana and he's a handful as well so uh, i'm i can't wait to talk to you and see how both of the nights go uh but it doesn't make it doesn't make it to talk about them (laughs) yeah the uh the beauty on my end is i get to ask you how the games turn out we get to talk about it after the fact and you're the one that's in there having to, to dissect and, and scout and yeah. do all the all the planning for it. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it's 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 crazy, especially in Mid Southern Conference, and we've talked about that so much. There's no nights off 
in our area and in our conference. I mean, rarely are you like, com- I mean, really you're never comfortable, but there's, it's, it's pretty hard to come across the game that you're, you know, that you can relax at any point. I mean, there's always, every team is bringing players that are tough or they bring a system or a coach that you're worried. He's got something up his sleeve that we're not ready for. Um, and that's the fun of it, but also it keeps you up at night, especially. Oh yeah. Especially weekends like this weekend, but keep you tossing and turning. Um, but it, I'm excited for it. It'll be super fun. And I'm, I'm really excited to, to be in some packed gymnasiums on Friday yeah. and Saturday. Yeah, it's a, it's always a good test. I always enjoyed it playing against the teams that, you know, had players of that caliber and, you know, got a chance to obviously the Silver Creek teams that won a couple of state titles with uh, Kaufman oh, yeah. Wren, who's now at Purdue, who will be a teammate of Jack Benner and uh, Cooper Jacoby, who is arguably my favorite high school player of the last, you know, eight or ten years. He was just he was a lot to deal with for as good as, as Trey Kaufman Wren was in high school and continues to be. Uh, I really felt like Jacoby was kind of the glue that held that team together and kind of uh, oh, yeah. almost, you know, was kind of the engine that, that kept them running because he was, he was just so energetic. He did a little bit of everything and whether it was needing to go get offensive boards or get a defensive stop or whatever it was, you know, uh, he would also lock down the other team's best player and, and there was just a whole lot of things that he could do. And, and for me, that those teams were a lot of fun to watch. So it's kind of the same deal with this Brownstown squad right now. It's not just necessarily, uh, you know, the one-headed monster. They've got guys in four or five different positions and watching them play because I'm like you. I tune into YouTube and yeah. get a chance to watch them play. And they've got guys in multiple positions who um, are legitimate players. And, you know, I've – it's good to see where your where your team stacks up whenever you get a team like that, especially coming into your own gym. Uh, you know it'll be a good environment, and it'll be fun to, to see how the Cordon Central Panthers do. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as we're sitting there talking, I, I, I'm thinking about that, and these are some guys I've coached against with you and then on some other staff. I've coached against a whole lot of Boilermakers, and I'm waiting for one that's on the bench with me or coming off the bench with me. You know, like right. I've coached a whole lot of guys against a whole lot of guys that have gone – you know, up there and played for Coach Painter, and I'm like, you know, waiting for one of those kids to come to downtown Gordon. But we'll <laughs> see. Hopefully, that's in the mix. Yeah, it would be really nice to be sitting on the bench and be able to turn around, look up in the stands, and know that that coach is going to come down and talk to me after the game yeah, I know it. about a guy on my team instead of having to prepare for the kid that's on the other team. But yeah, no kidding. I've got you know, they just said Trent Sisley went up and and visited uh, Coach Painter and the Boilermakers this week. I mean, if he goes there, I've uh, you know, I, I may send Coach Painter some paperwork. Like, man, I've got, I've got as much experience with these guys. Just talk to me. I know exactly what they can do. Uh, they've done all of it to me. So uh, that's what's just so funny is, man. There's the just in our area in our conference, the guys that are at that level, and, and it's a, you know, you think about those kids that come out of Indy, but we talk about it all the time. These Southern Indiana kids here are being nationally recognized and they're yeah. playing for some really big schools and playing really important roles there or will be playing really important yeah. roles there when a couple of these guys head up, you know, to play. So Yeah, I think the last – you and I have both been kind of lucky. I know, um, you know, going back to, to when I played, most of the teams in the area had someone who went to go play college ball bat or somewhere. Uh, yeah. Most were IUS-type level players, NAIA, D3. There were a couple that were D2 and there were a smattering of Division One players, you know, thinking back to the Anthony Winchester, Evan Seacat, um, Jeremy Holland is one that comes to mind that, that we played against when I was, when I was in school. But 
uh, I feel like with the last five or six years, you know, the Division One talent in Southern Indiana in particular, again, it's always been there in certain pockets of the state. Uh, but I really feel like the, the Division One talent, Bloomington and South, the last five or six years has kind of grown a little bit, which to me says a lot about, you know, the development of players and the level of coaching that's going on. You know, there's always the emphasis in, again, certain pockets, but I think the coaching that's going on in Southern Indiana has really started to pick up a little bit. Uh, and I think to a certain degree, you and I as teachers, the, the school choice and being able yeah. to go basically to whatever high school you want to go to after middle school, I think that that's opened some things up. Uh, but uh, I don't know. I, I just think it's been it's been really fun to be able to, to be a part of as a coach, but then be able to sit back and watch and then also be able to, to talk to you and reflect on some of these guys that you're coaching against still. And the level of talent that we're starting to see is, is really kind of fun. It is. It's really fun, and it's, it's fun to see our, our area of the state get recognized a lot and see these coaches come down here and, and see how great these players are. Yeah. Super fun. Yeah. So as we're talking about superstar talent, I'm going to segue us a little bit. They, As we started the podcast tonight, they dropped the Eastern and Western Conference All-Star starters, and this is a particularly special All-Star year because we get to host the All-Star game. Uh, they've got the All-Star Game in Indianapolis. Um, it's I'm super excited that we have it here. I, I really look at uh, Then you actually see what it costs to go to the All-Star Game in Indy, and you're like, I'm, I'll catch it on TV. <laughs> uh, I'll keep the seat I normally have. But, right. I, you know, before we talk about the starters, I think it's really awesome that we've got it in Indy. Uh, and, I don't know, I'm pumped to have the All-Star Game in, you know, in basketball country. Uh, it's something that I think it was in the the last time they hosted it was in the mid '80s, something like 1985. Yeah. I think is the last time Indy had it there at Market Square Arena. I, I recall that because Michael Jordan, I think, won the the dunk contest that year. Uh, okay. To me, it's it's crazy, and I know that there are great cities all across the NBA. To me, it's insane when you think about Indiana being a state that took basketball and really grew it into what it is. When you think about, you know, when you name basketball and you think about, well, what state represents basketball? Well, it's Indiana across the board. Uh, yeah. There's a reason why they say in 49 states it's basketball, but this is Indiana. And yeah. I think yeah. as, as a league, how you're not bringing the All-Star game to Indiana at least once a decade. Yeah, I know it. I mean, I know you want to have – there's obviously an interest in bringing cities like Vegas into the fold a little bit. You want to have an international flair and take it to Canada to give the uh, exposure there and things like that. But I just don't know how you go almost 40 years without, without bringing the all-star game to any city, really how, you know, I don't know how it's chosen. I don't know how they, how they decide those things. Uh, but I'm excited for it to be an Indy. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. There's no better sports city to me. Uh, the downtown part of that city is awesome. Everything's walkable. It's not like you have to, you know, you can get a hotel and walk to anywhere you want to go for the events. It's not like you have to Uber and taxi and all that type of stuff. So uh, it's a great host city, and the Pacers have at least one guy that's going to be representing them in the All-Star game, which is awesome. And, yes. Uh, the stuff that they've done around the arena recently that I've seen in the news looks really awesome too. How they've turned uh, 
gosh, that old sort of dilapidated looking parking garage that was right next door. They've turned that into, you know, a bicentennial uh, yeah. park and, you know, they've had a basketball court there. They've had an ice rink down there for the winter time. And so they're, they're really trying, I think, to upgrade the downtown area, make it more appealing, make it more attractive to people. And hopefully, you know, the all-star game is just a, a way to kick that off. So. Absolutely. And they, and I think the coolest thing Indy did is put the uh, basketball court in the airport. That was, that was phenomenal. And like, I was texting you about it. And you're like, I don't think they should take it down. It has, to, it has to stay. I mean, it just absolutely has to stay. It doesn't look like it's a hardwood floor. It looks like it's, Something yeah. that they brought in and laid down, but I think you got to leave it. And I think it's, I think, uh, you know, you got to play, you know, against your fellow passengers for priority seating. I feel like it's one on one. You get, you know, I'd say like you can challenge, you can challenge some first class guys, a little one on one. You know, there, one I, I'm waiting to hear for the first popped ACL. <laughs> There's going to be some 45 year old man on a layover that's trying to get one last, trying to get one last run in. Pick up games at the airport, to me, that's got to be now. Oh, that's next level. That's next level. Get a good game of 21 going. Oh, yeah. Getting on the plane yeah. with some black eyes, bruised elbows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun. Hopefully they get that started. So before we talk about the starters, I had an idea, and I thought about it too late, Derek, and I'm I'm frustrated that I did, but it's something we got to start next year. Okay. Just because I want to post it on our social media pages, or you know maybe we can get a little bit of – of supporting this, but it wasn't indie this year, and I'm frustrated I didn't think of this. But I wanted to vote, and maybe we can make this a, an episode before the All Star game. But I wanted both of us to get on there and do that daily All Star voting, and we should have voted for every current player from the state of Indiana, Ooh, yeah, or who attended an Indiana college. And you know how you can vote, and it'll give you like the court, and you can see yeah. the players on. I really. I, I'm I'm disappointed. I thought of that too late after after voting was over because I thought about it the other day and thought, oh, I'll do this and share with Derek, and then the voting that ended. <laughs> but to have it at the Indy Court and then have guys like you know Mike Conley and Gordon Hayward and Eric Gordon on there, and some of those guys who maybe attended in Indiana, you know Trace Jackson Davis, get everybody who's you know from the state, as many as we can from the state, or guys who attended a college and see you know if we could fill the All Star starters and see if we can pump that in every day. You know, I don't think we'd get him on, but just be something interesting. So something to think about for next year, but yeah. maybe we could do a little episode on our little Indiana All-Star, uh, NBA All-Star uh, thing. Something to think about for the future. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. I'm disappointed at myself, Derek. I thought about that too late. <laughs> that would have been perfect because it's in Indiana. Ah, they let the dollar short. But without further ado, um, I'll let you take the Eastern Conference and just announce that, and I'll, uh, I'll announce okay. who made the uh, Western All-Star starter. So go ahead with the East there. <clears throat> Okay, so the Eastern Conference, the all-star starters are Giannis at one forward, Embiid playing the center spot, Jason Tatum at the other forward, and then the guards are, comp- are comprised of Damian Lillard from the Bucks and Tyrese Halliburton from our own oh, yeah. Indiana Pacers. So the hometown guy gets the all-star start, um, and I think out of the guard voting, if I'm you know, I may stand corrected here, uh, but he led the voting from the fans, players, and coaches. He went three for three in the all-star voting and led them at the guard position, which I think is pretty awesome. That uh, is awesome. And I can't, you know, talk about a guy that's deserving. The Absolutely. the year that he's off to and sort of the, the rise he's had since coming to the Pacers, 
is something that's been really fun to watch. Now, if the Pacers could play a lick of defense, I think that they could probably put together a serious run. Uh, but the fact that they can't guard a chair is a little bit of a problem. But, again, he's deserving. He's had a couple of games where he's had north of 15 assists and zero turnovers, which in the NBA is just absurd. Uh, and so he's on a great run, and I'm looking forward to seeing that. And the Western Conference, Cam, is you. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I hope they let Tyrese be the um, – they kind of have a guy that's usually like the host of it who's like the hometown guy. Yep. I'm assuming that will be get to be him, so that's pretty cool. So for the Western <laughs> Conference All-Stars, uh, in the front court, we have LeBron James, who has been named the captain, Kevin Durant, and Nikola Jokic. Uh, and our guards, we have Luka Doncic and Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Has to be one of the biggest guard backcourts in All-Star history. Those All are that? two very big point guards there. Um, yeah. So, interesting there. I'm glad Shea Gilgis got a start. He's deserving. He's become one of the best you know, two or three guards in the league right now. Um, no surprises with the other guys. Right. Um, just curious looking at this, and this will be fun. I mean, it's I, every year we I watch it and I... I Always get sucked in, and, out, and then it's you know, then it just becomes you know YMCA ball where there's a lot of cherry picking and stuff, and, and it becomes sometimes when they let it get a little competitive, like it, it becomes a really fun game. You know, you can watch maybe like the fourth quarter of it, um, but I do enjoy it just because I like seeing all the guys in the court, and I will watch it this year because it's in Indiana. But my question to you is: Do you think anybody is more deserving to be in the starting lineup? Because I have a couple of ideas for this. The starters are always interesting to me because I never, I never quite understand the voting process and why it's it's to me it's always been given a little bit too much, uh, maybe credit or too much value. Probably is a better way to, to phrase that. Yeah. Uh, not to say that none of these guys are deserving. I look at the Eastern Conference. I think those five guys all, all make sense. Uh, I think you could argue that maybe – I think you and I were talking about this before we got started, and I'm kind of on the same page. I do like the the Jalen Brunson conversation that you and I had about maybe being a guy that was left off from being a starter that definitely could have been. And looking at the Western Conference, uh, I don't quite know. Again, I think all five are obviously deserving. There's a whole lot of name recognition there in those top five. Uh, but – you and I also mentioned this guy, somebody like Anthony Edwards that is having just, again, a phenomenal year in his own right. Yeah. Obviously, you can't put you can't start six guys. But to me, if you're having a conversation, Jalen Brunson in the East and Anthony Edwards in the West would be two guys off the top of the head for me uh, that certainly would have been deserving and warranted uh, a starting spot for either either conference. Yeah, for sure. The issue is the casual fan. And again, it's it's open to be, you know, a vote for the fan. And I understand right. that. In complete honesty, I'm not a huge fan of the fan vote because I'd rather the guys having the best season get in. Um, and that's not taking away from what some of these guys do, but I completely agree. We had that conversation ahead of time here. I think Jalen Brunson is more deserving than Damian Lillard, and that's not a knock on Lillard. I just think Jalen Brunson is having a an all-star starter season. Uh, and the other guy I'd like to see jump in is Anthony Edwards. He has the number one team in the West. He's the best player on that team. You know, he's not really in the MVP conversation, but he's having his breakout year. And I think he deserves, and I, again, it is LeBron James. I understand. But 
in terms of guys I'd like to see get a starting spot, I'd like to see Anthony Edwards over LeBron out of that five. I think Edwards is just having the type of season that deserves, uh, you know, he deserves that kind of spot. I think he's a guy to watch out for. I'm sure when we get close to the All-Star game, we'll have some conversations. I think he's a guy to watch out for for getting an All-Star game MVP. Uh, that guy is going to be playing this game competitive. He is a one-speed kind of player. I can definitely see Anthony Edwards being a guy that tries to go for 40 in that game and and uh, really take that thing over. So I, I'm excited to see him in the game. He would be my early pick. I'm, I'm assuming he's going to make the team. Uh you know, to sneak in there and get an MVP look. But I'm happy with it otherwise. I mean, obviously, like you said, his name recognition, all these guys make sense. But just with what Brunson's doing in New York, having a guy in New York that people are excited about now for the first time in a while, and then to have Anthony Edwards take this Minnesota team, that's kind of surprising they're still number one. People did not expect yeah. this. I didn't expect it. Um, I'd like to see those guys be in there. So, I don't know. I'm really excited we have the Indianapolis um all-star game and i think it'll be a lot of fun because there's so much youth in this and maybe they'll bring in a level of competitiveness that the generation before didn't quite have yeah i think it's going to be a lot of fun i'm looking forward to it um i'm kind of like you you know the the fan vote is very much a popularity contest you know we've had a couple of years where uh you know the top couple of vote getters have been injured and, and missed a significant amount of time and they still get voted in they're still on the roster and to me, that's you know you've got to make some some adjustments at some point when you've got a guy that's missed you know twenty games up to this point, and you've got another guy that you know has played in every game and is, like you said, is having a breakout season or something like that. You've got guys in the league that deserve to be acknowledged. I think in some cases, and just simply going off of a pure popularity contest isn't necessarily always uh, you know what works. And not to go politics, but there is a reason why we have the electoral college. <laughs> With yeah, our presidential sure. election system. So maybe the NBA could think about taking a page out of the Founding Fathers book and maybe have some sort of an electoral college process that relates to the fan vote. I don't know. Uh, that would, I think that would go over really, really well if we introduced that. Yeah, that like, an, like a lead balloon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, uh, excited for the All-Star game. Can't wait for it to be an indie. Wish we could be there, but I'm sure we'll enjoy it just as much. Yeah. In our own respective homes. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to play four quarters with some hot topics across basketball. All right, Dad, we're going to play a little four, four quarters of basketball here. We've got four pretty hot basketball topics, uh, and we're going to kick it off uh, in our home state here and talk about the Indiana Pacers. Not just that they're having a great season, but they made the biggest acquisition so far. I know trade rumors and, and trades uh, are about to heat up as we're getting close to the deadline. But the Pacers move not only was just a big name, but may have a huge, huge impact. The Indiana Pacers uh, traded for Pascal Siakam from the Toronto Raptors. Uh, a lot of people said they may have given up a little too much for it. Uh, I'm curious to know your thoughts about it and then just the discussion in general. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'm going to kick it over to you. Uh, I know you are the, the Pacers fan. I enjoy Indiana basketball. I want the Pacers to be good. I'm a little bit more of a floater when it comes to my uh, – <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm not afraid to say that I jump on some NBA bandwagon. That's but I'm okay. excited about the trade. I'm excited about the Pacers being good. What are your thoughts on the uh, Siakam trade? Yeah, I think if nothing else, it at least brings excitement, like you said, and it it, uh, it puts some attention on the Pacers, which has been much needed for a while. Halliburton has kind of re revitalized and brought some new energy to the to the team and and gotten them attention, obviously, because he's an All Star starter. But 
to me, this trade is something that kind of legitimizes the Pacers as really trying to move their franchise forward right now. And I think that that's been something that maybe the fan base has been wanting to see as the Pacers have sort of been content the last several years. You know, they've not been a team that's went out and gotten max money level players. You know, they've kind of settled for that middle of the road, second tier sort of uh, sort of star. And now we're starting to see that shift a little bit. And I think the general manager Pritchard's doing a nice job in this. Uh, you know, the move to get Halliburton, he's going to be obviously a max level player, and they're paying him very well right now. They gave him a new deal recently. Uh, Siakam is a guy that comes in making over $30 million a year. So the Pacers are showing now that they're willing to make deals, to spend money, to bring guys in. And to me, it's, it's a testament to the fact that maybe they realize that they have an opportunity to, to win now. And they went a long time with a guy like Reggie Miller without putting much around him. And hopefully they realize that we, we as in the Pacers, can't waste uh, the prime of Tyrese Halliburton because you don't know how long that's going to be, but he's getting right into the middle of it. And the willingness to surround him with pieces like a Siakam uh, only further legitimizes their lineup. And to me, it at least is uh, a move in the right direction for the Pacers moving forward. Absolutely. And, and you know, I was thinking as this happened, this is the first time in my lifetime <clears throat> and maybe the first time ever as you're referencing the Miller years that the Pacers have pulled the trigger on a big deal like this. I mean, I cannot remember when the Pacers have gone out and really got something. I mean, people were pumped that the Pacers got Bruce Brown. Like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe. And he's a great piece. But that was like a huge deal that the Pacers brought him in. And it was like, that should not bring that much excitement. <laughs> and the NFL is like, oh, my gosh, we got this really, really decent role player. Uh, but they made a deal. And to go get Siakam, I'm I'm shocked because there was rumors of that. Like, oh, the Pacers are going to trade for this guy, this guy. And I just shook it off because I've never seen the Pacers make a move. I mean, the biggest acquisition that they've had before that, I mean, they brought in Mark Jackson when they had Reggie Miller, and that was a big deal. You know what I mean? Like, that's, right. that was a star levelish player that they brought in. I know you're laughing at it, but, like, they don't, they don't do that. I mean, they have right. a good group with Paul George that they – I want to say kind of uh, – they weren't ready for Paul George to do what he did. Nobody expected that. Uh, now they've got a real superstar, and they're pulling the trigger and look like they're coming after it. Um, you know, my question is if they're healthy, and hopefully Tyrese comes back and he's ready to go because he's so much fun, can they compete in the playoffs? They've had the best offense in the league over the entire year. Their transition offense is awesome. We talked about that. We watched that video. J.J. Redick mentioned on his podcast. Patriots have the best transition offense in basketball, best transition field goal percentage. Uh, Pascal Siakam leads the league in transition field goal percentage as an individual. Like that just seems like a match made in heaven. Um, they kind of give me the vibes of the, and I may have mentioned this in another episode before, the Steve Nash Phoenix Suns. They give me that seven second or like, a, you know, it almost feels like, hey, did Halliburton just get his Stoudemire in Pascal Siakam? Right. Um, you know, that, that's kind of what I'm thinking with this, man. They, they, they're giving me that vibe. Uh, you know, I, I don't know, but you mentioned it, and I'm thinking the same thing. The issue is not going to be the way that they can score when it comes playoff time. The playoffs are about defensive adjustments, period. And this team scores a ton of points, but they also 
let the other team score a ton of points. So I don't know what they look like come playoff time. I think it's exciting, and I think they're going to be better and finish higher in the standings with this because they just got a, a great number two for Tyrese Halliburton, uh, a great number two. They're going to be fun. I feel like it's the seven seconds or less Suns. That's what it looks like to me. It feels like they've, they've built that sort of look to it. But I have a ton of questions when it comes to the way that they can defend in the playoffs. Yeah, and looking at that, just to, to kind of go off of some of the points that you made there, Cam, you know, you talked about the Pacers, their transition. They average almost 17 points a game in transition. Uh, they lead the NBA in points in the paint, which a team that scores as much as they do, I guess it that obviously is going to be a byproduct of that. But sure. they average 56.5 points per game in the paint. And when you're scoring, when you're scoring regularly, 115 and north of 115, you would think that that number may hover a little bit lower due to the amount of threes that you're hitting in that, or the amount of, of trips you're getting to the free throw line to have that. But they score all 56 and a half points per game in the paint, and they get 18 points a game off turnovers, which I thought was pretty significant. You think about the NBA and how talented those guys are. You don't see a, a lot of teams getting almost 20 points a night uh, off of turnovers because when you think about how many points the Pacers give up, your brain doesn't go to, oh, I bet they force a lot of turnovers or I bet they score a lot right. of points off turnovers. Uh, right. But you're going to pair Siakam. He comes into the Pacers averaging 22 points, six rebounds, five assists a night. Uh, and to go back with your fast break, comment the Pacers lead the league in dunk and layup points and Siakam has 175 made shots from inside five feet this season wow so I think when you talk about what the Pacers can do offensively as far as getting out and run I think he brings a different dynamic to that team Uh, you mentioned whether or not they gave up too much I really don't think they did Uh, you hate you hate seeing a great glue guy like a Bruce Brown who's got championship pedigree was on that Denver Nuggets team leave a a franchise Uh, I've got a buddy that lives up there in Indy and he said that you know he got to play golf with Bruce a couple times said he's just a great dude Uh, but it's the nature of the business and you get a chance to bring in a Siakam you know in his prime also to pair him with Tyrese Halliburton, who's going for 24 and 12 a night. And, you know, nothing to shake a stick at is Miles Turner, who's averaging 17 and 7 a night. This may give him a chance to either play a little bit more stretch five or, you know, the Pacers have had some success by putting Miles Turner on the block a little bit this season and letting him go to work on some guys. Um, I was happy to see the Pacers didn't have to give up Isaiah Jackson or Jalen Smith. I think they're great role pieces. Uh, They also got to keep Buddy Heald, who – again, continues to be a legitimate threat from the three-point line and helps stretch the floor and create space for guys. So I think it's an exciting get for the Pacers. And it's like you said, this is not something that you see Indiana do very often. Uh, yeah. You know, they've been very well known for bringing in pieces and bringing in role guys to fill gaps. But going out and getting a guy like Pascal Siakam is not something that they're known for, and I think it's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the guy that's the happiest about this has to be Pascal Siakam. Because Toronto has been a weird situation for a couple of years. And then to think, I'm already getting a ton of points in transition here. And now I have the best guy in the league at throwing that ball ahead to these guys. Yeah, He just has to smell blood in the water. I mean, if he's already enjoying running the court and playing, you know, getting shots around the rim, he is going 
to be in hog heaven in there. Like, I yeah. mean, I, I'm, I'm excited to see what it looks like when those two guys get to do it together and they get in rhythm and, you know, because sometimes in these trades in the middle of the season, you're thrown into this system and you have to adjust. And some of these players are so good, they don't have to adjust that right. much. But Fitz, hey, keep doing what you're doing and you're going to see it about five or six, seven more times a game than what you're used to. <laughs> yeah. Like, really, it's like, hey, what you've been doing, now just expect to get it way yeah. more. Uh, that's going to be really, really fun, and, and I'm excited to see what they look like in, in, at full capacity. Um, you know, especially with having the all-star in Tyrese Halliburton and having the, you know him be healthy back, it's, it'll be fun to see what they look like come playoff time. Um, as our buzzer rings off there, but I'm excited to see it. I'm glad, like you said, the Pacers pulled the trigger on something. Oh, yeah, and absolutely. It, it, it makes it look like, hey, for the first time in – a very long time. They have some goals. Um, we're going to shift uh, shift some gears and head into college basketball. And maybe reluctantly for us, we're going to jump across the river here. And I honestly, we're, we're, we're coming up close to a year of having this podcast, Derek. I never would have thought we'd have a segment borderline just dedicated to this group. <laughs> Definitely not in the first year. But um, I want to talk Kentucky Wildcats. Yeah, I think we have to. I think we have to. Yeah. We have to talk Kentucky Wildcats. We talked about that we were secretly uh, big fans of Reed Shepard, but there may be a guy that's even more fun uh, in, in Kentucky. And we're going to refer to him as Big Z, but I'm going to have the pronunciation here. Zvonimir Vesich, the seven-footer who just became eligible for the Kentucky Wildcats, put on a big-time show in Rupp Arena in his first game. Uh, that was unexpected. I didn't know a ton about this guy. I knew they had a guy that was gaining eligibility soon. Um, but they threw down 100 points against Georgia in Rupp Arena with this guy. And that's probably one of the more exciting college basketball debuts that I've, that I've uh, <laughs> seen in a while. Uh, what did you think about seeing that guy? Well, I was unaware that he had gotten his eligibility. I knew that there was talk, again, with local TV, you know, about the kid from Kentucky, that they were fighting hard with the NCAA to get his eligibility, you know, where it needed to be and so he could play. And didn't know that he had gotten into the lineup that night, but got a text or a screenshot um, from someone that showed me the first five minutes of his Kentucky career. And he was... 11 points, 3 of 4 from 3. I think he had 4 rebounds, a block, and like 2 assists in his He's first... He's pass behind the back. Yeah, in his first 5 minutes, his first paint touch, he whips a behind-the-back pass from 20 feet out to the 3-point line. A guy buries it. Uh, I, I'm i excited. I, again, you and I have talked a couple of times on here and also just on our own that we both really enjoy watching Kentucky play, and that hurts coming having those words come out of my mouth. But, uh, you know, good basketball is good basketball. And when you've got talent and the ball moves and there's spacing and a little bit of freedom and guys are reading and reacting and you've got shooters in the right spots it, and they play hard. Like, it's not just yeah. necessarily watching them play offense. They just play hard. And... Yeah. Uh, that's something I'm coming to appreciate a little bit more uh, out of Calipari teams is they do play hard. Yes. Uh, they absolutely. don't know it doesn't necessarily translate in, into wins necessarily, but 
they do play hard, and I, I, I like watching this team play. We're huge fans of Reed Shepard. I think they've got six NBA players on their roster right now. Uh, yeah. And adding this guy to the mix, I think, only further elevates them. I know South Carolina shot the lights out the other night and, yeah. and beat them in South Carolina, but um, Kentucky's going to be a team moving forward. I think that you and I probably would have been watching and keeping an eye on anyway. But now with this guy in the mix, I think it only further puts them in a conversation to make a deep run in March. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, they we want to speak too soon and just go ahead and crown them. But by the same token, you know, they do come off of this game where they, they have a great game and then they have a not-so-great game against South Carolina. South Carolina shoots the lights out. Um, like you said, and Kentucky doesn't have the best scoring night um, that they would normally right. have. Um, but... To throw a guy in here like this with that is showing flashes of the international skills we're seeing from all these guys like Jokic and Doncic and these other guys that are coming over that just had these very complete games. They can shoot the ball from the outside. They handle it. Like we said, he whips it behind the back pass. <laughs> He's blocking shots. Um, you know, we haven't – you know, we've seen some size in college basketball like Zach Eady that has dominated, but this kid's got a little bit more mobility. I and mean, I'm curious to see what that'll look like when he's got a few games under his belt with the Cats with all the guards around him. Like you said, they play hard and they really defend. He, he and Shepard are, are two guys that in March I'm really excited to see what, what they could do when it's, when push comes to shove. There's And, again, this, is, this would be a very premature comparison because I don't have enough sample size to really uh, speak on it too in-depth. But just going off of – highlights in two games there's a little bit of maybe a Porzingis feel oh yeah, yeah to this good. guy with maybe a little bit better court vision because I think Porzingis came in really just as an offensive guy who was going to go try and score and get buckets um, and he's found his role obviously with, with Boston but this kid feels like maybe he's got a little bit Somewhere between Porzingis and Chet Holmgren, if we could have that conversation, maybe if we yeah, I like that. we kind of mesh those two guys with their skill sets. Uh, but unfortunately, I will be tuning in to far more SEC basketball this year than I had intended. You can't tell, like we can't like I, I'm at a point where I've the other day I was like, hey, are the Cats playing. I'm gonna check that on, and I was like, I had to go look at myself in the mirror. Like, what did you, what did you say? <laughs> Did you say are the cats playing? Yeah. But you know what? I mean, like you said, good basketball is good basketball. Yeah. And I don't know. I love the Porzingis comp, though. That's a that's a great. Uh, I like that a whole lot. Um, now we threw out them losing at South Carolina, and I was talking about, or we were looking at talking about some of our other favorites. Um, and I'm sure you have some some teams you'd like to throw out as some of your favorites right now. But when I was looking at the rankings today, one of the most interesting things I saw is the splits between home and away for these top-ranked teams. And in college basketball, if you look at the top 10, eight of those 10 are undefeated at home. And it is a, a large sample size. It is unbelievable how difficult it is to win on the road in college basketball right yeah. now. And I, I know that's not like a huge surprise, but looking at that, it was just staggering at these teams that it's like, man, you do not go to these places and beat somebody. And, you know, we were like, oh, you know, hey, Kentucky's got this good team, but they just lost. No, you're just on the road in college basketball, and yeah. it's really hard to do that. Um, so that was just such a 
I mean, again, I know that this isn't a shocking statistic. I mean, we've known how hard it is to go places, but it is just crazy to look at these teams and think, man. But it, it, but what's crazy is it's hard for that to translate in March because it's all it's all neutral. But I just thought it was amazing to see some of these teams and think, man, you're not you don't just you just don't go to these teams. They are gyms and beat anybody. But um, the other teams I've I've really liked watching. Uh, and I mentioned how much I like Purdue and Houston last time. And UConn right now is is ranked number one. But the reason I really like UConn is because of uh, Coach's comments the other day after uh, the Villanova game. Did you catch that post-game press conference where he said, you better get us now? Uh, uh, I, just, yeah. I just loved that. His interview post-game, I just thought, man, I, I think they're going on another run. Yeah, that that, is, that's, that's kind of one of his – that's one of his calling card statements, I think, is – because um, yeah. he was one of the like his first year there at UConn, when they were mediocre, they were average, and, and that's one of the things he talked about was you better get us now because it it's coming. Yeah, yeah. And he's been right. I he's I mean that yeah. there's not been a more accurate statement because UConn has been a problem. Really, following his first year there, talking about Coach Hurley. Uh, yeah, he's got the ship in the right direction, and those kids. You talk about a team that plays hard. I got to see them live. Uh, oh, yeah. and absolutely work over my Hoosiers in Madison Square Garden. But, uh, yeah, you talk about a team that, that has the right pieces in the right places and that they've brought back, uh, oh, their big man. Um, yeah. Kling, is it Klingman? Is that right? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They've got him back, so they, they appear to be at full strength. And, yeah, I'm, the, UConn, the UConn Huskies may very well – be in a, a very strong position to return to the final four and, and be there in March when it counts for sure. Absolutely. Uh, are there other college teams right now? You're, you're, uh, maybe they're sleepers or guys you're, you're watching uh, a little more intently than, than other teams. Well, I'll give you a couple that I wrote down and then we can kind of have our, have a conversation. If you want to dive into any in particular, I will let you, uh, unfortunately my, my train of teams that have, whipped the Hoosiers continues to go here as we talk about Kentucky and UConn and the next team I wrote down was Auburn. Uh, oh, okay. They they start out slow and I think it's kind of I don't know if it's a Bruce Pearl thing or an Auburn thing but uh out of the gate they didn't look fantastic. Then they become an absolute buzzsaw when they play the Hoosiers in Atlanta and absolutely run through that team and, and embarrass embarrass my squad uh, but I like I liken them a little bit um, to Kentucky to a certain extent because they they have athletes their guard play is is great and they've got guys who can shoot the basketball but they're just incredibly long incredibly athletic they're physical uh, their defense travels um, I think that's something you got to account for I know the home court advantage in college basketball right now is insane uh, but I think we'll start to see some of these top-tier teams counterbalance, and you know, water will find its level as far as these top teams just kind of making a name for themselves and uh, handling teams, whether they're at home or on the road. But I like I'm with you. I like UConn. I like Auburn as a team that could potentially put themselves in position to make a run. To stick in the SEC, I like Tennessee a whole lot. Also, I think they're. They're physical. They can score the basketball. Uh, getting uh, Dalton connect in the transfer portal, uh, and again to stick with my uh, 
Indiana falling off the map here a little bit. Them not getting Dalton connecting the transfer portal and him going to Tennessee has changed things for Tennessee's season. Uh, yeah. And uh, the last team I wrote down as a potential to, to make a run is uh, Carolina Tar Heels and the way that they've been playing lately. There you have uh, – they've really turned it on as of late, and they seem to be – they seem to be clicking. They seem to be cohesive. And, uh, you know, Baycott seems to be healthy. And if he's healthy and R.J. Davis is healthy, I think they've got a real shot to, to be very competitive come tournament time. Yeah, the team I was, I was going to ask you about was Tennessee, just because they've had some, like, some of these games are so interesting. They'll hold some really good teams to really low-scoring games. And then they'll get beat by – you know, some of these other teams that, you know, maybe you'd expect them to win, they'll beat a ranked team and lose to somebody that, yeah. that's not ranked. And so that's why I'm curious. Like, I don't know how seriously I take Tennessee, right. but I know that they have some of these games where it's like they smother these teams on defense. So I Tennessee, I find interesting. UConn is still my favorite. I always love the Houston Cougars. They've just not quite been able to put it together, and maybe this is the year. Um, I'm always on the Houston Cougars bandwagon. The other team I think is interesting, and I think that will be – uh, a team to watch in March is Marquette. Uh, I think Shaka Smart, uh, you know, a couple years ago, he had that run with uh, his group his group in, uh, you know, Texas, and then he had his groups a couple years ago, and I'm, I'm blanking on. VCU. Uh, CU, that's right. At VCU. And I think he's just got something good there at Marquette. He's just got like a, you know, kind of a special group. And I think that they're one that could be, feisty in March just because he's a guy that's been there he's made runs and uh you know at Texas maybe didn't have quite the success he wanted but um I don't know that team's just always interesting in the games I've seen them play and the game the scores I see them against some of these really good teams they just put up these really big numbers against some really really good teams um so they're a team that I think can go on a run just because he's done that before uh, you know so We'll see what it looks like, but some of these teams I'm I'm really excited for because it's you know there's a lot of you know right now not that clear cut team that everyone's really expecting to win, but right uh, excited to see what that what that looks like going forward with those groups. But um, we're gonna make our jump back here to the NBA for quarter three. Uh, in quarter three, we're gonna talk about the huge scoring night that we witnessed. Uh, earlier in the week. So on the anniversary of Kobe Bryant's 81-point game, we have two huge scoring nights. Joel Embiid has a 70-point game against the San Antonio Spurs and Victor Wimbanyama's, you know, kind of welcome to the league moment there. Or maybe maybe he's had multiple of those. But And then Carl Anthony Towns scores 62 points and has a crazy shooting performance in the first half. Goes 8 for 9 from 3. Hit his first 8 in a row. Um, I kind of want to talk about those two performances and the way that scoring has just exploded in like the past couple of years and sort of your thoughts on that. So uh, what do you think about Joel and, and Kat having some huge scoring nights? I think it's a testament to how good NBA players are offensively and probably how much we take their talent for granted a little bit. For sure. Um, you know, when you think about guys that can score at the college level, you know, if you're getting – somewhere between 18 and 22 points a night in college, you're considered an elite scorer. And, you know, when you think about the, the small percentage of those guys that then go on and make it to the NBA, 
it's it's kind of astounding when you think about the work that those guys put in and how good they are offensively. And the fact that Joel Embiid, granted, is a, he's probably a larger human as far as volume goes than Wimbenyama. But, Wimben, but I mean, Wimby's still seven feet four, and Joel went out and, you know, Embiid put 70 on him. Uh, I think it just goes to show that, you know, in most cases – Great offense beats great defense, and I don't know that I would necessarily equate the Spurs to being a great defensive team. Uh, I think the the quote that that Coach Popovich gave about they were going to bust Embiid's backside on that night yeah. probably was a pretty large motivating factor. Uh, oh yeah, and I think Embiid probably set out to prove a point, and I would say he more than more than exceeded. Improving his point, um, seventy is a legitimate number. I think he's the ninth player all time to drop seventy in a game, and uh, again, I just think it's a it's a complete testament as to how skilled these guys are offensively. Because you look at a, a seven foot one guy like Embiid, you think getting seventy is going to be incredibly difficult because it's going to be all twos and free throws. But he's able to stretch the floor, knock down threes, take guys off the dribble. Uh, and I thought the nice thing was, too, it's like his teammates knew he was rolling and were content to let the big man have it and let him operate, oh, yeah. which, you know, to me is always fun, too. And you've got guys on your team that are willing to to concede a little bit and let a guy roll. That makes it even more fun to watch. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've always been a huge Joel Embiid fan. Um, you know, I took some heat for that early on in the career because they had, you know, he was injured for so long and he, you know, uh, played on some weird Sixers teams. Uh, I, they they call him JoJo in Philly. I named my dog JoJo just because I was a, <laughs> such a big Joel Embiid fan. If I got another one, I'm sure I'll have a Nicola. But um, I just really like that guy, and he's become pretty much an unstoppable scorer. Like you were saying, it's not like he's a one trick pony who just has yeah. You know, he's just dominating with his size, or he's just a, a gets you know hot shooting that like Steph Curry will have sometimes, and not to take away from the guys that do that. But he's very complete for his size. He hits some outside shots. He does get to the free throw line a lot. Takes off the dribble. You know, just a Swiss Army knife of uh, Swiss Army knife of post moves down there. You know, he's got all kinds of stuff that he's pulling out of his bag, and he's pretty much doing all of these against the Spurs. You know, he's showing you pretty much everything he's got, and really when he needs to. Just uses the muscle if somebody wants to try and you know body him up. I mean, he just barreled down the lane and, and put his shoulder into a lot of guys. Um, and so it was really fun to see that. And the other guy having that night was Carl Anthony Towns, and his night was really interesting because he goes eight for eight from three. He has forty-two points in the first half. Is that right? Forty-two. Forty-two or forty-four in the first yeah. half. Yeah. And so he has this crazy scoring night, but they lose to the Charlotte Hornets. And he gets benched in the fourth quarter. Yeah. So they, they sit him down, and their coach after the game makes a comment about how he's got an immature group. And so the story is that they, on the bench, were paying attention to how many points Embiid had and trying to get Carl to surpass it. And the coach is frustrated that they're not focused on winning this game, and they end up losing this game where he's at, he has you know an explosion. And so that was kind of a, a weirder story and not getting the same attention as Embiid, but just a weird a weird story coming out of Minnesota, but also to have two bigs like that just have an explosive scoring knot. Carl's coming more from, you know, 
the three point line. I don't know. That's that's a pretty wild night, especially on the the eighty one point night. But you threw out the way that these teams score, and I want to throw a stat at you here. So currently, right now in the NBA, there are four players averaging over thirty points a game. Embiid is currently at thirty six points per game. Okay. There are four players averaging thirty one. Durant is fifth, and he's at twenty nine. But there are 18 players in the league right now who are averaging 25 points per game or more. That is unbelievable. And you go way down the list. The top 50 players in this league, there are 50 players in this league right now averaging 20 points a game. 50. And you're looking at teams right now, you know, Embiid's averaging 36, and his teammate Tyrese Maxey's averaging 25. Giannis Antetokounmpo is averaging over 30, and his teammate Damian Lillard is averaging 25. I mean, you're seeing teammates averaging both around 30. The Phoenix Suns have two players who are near 30 points a game. Uh, the Los Angeles Lakers have two guys at 25 points a game. I mean, you know, the Clippers. So you've got these teams, and you've got your one-two punch, both averaging 25-plus. This, this is unbelievable. And so, you know, the scoring in the league right now – is you know every year we've got these teams that are beating efficiency records and players that are more and more each year we've got another guy averaging 30 points a game. Right. So I'm curious what you think about the league right now because my thought is these teams are figuring out offense with the way that the game is analyzed now. Like truly mastering it with the personnel they have. Right after the Steph Curry explosion like a decade ago, teams just kind of went to, okay, well, I guess we just have to shoot a ton of three-point shots. And that's part of what's happening. But what they're doing is not just taking a ton of threes. These teams are mastering um, their offense by getting the absolute best, most efficient version out of every single player. And they are just putting them in the best spots. They find the matchup they want on every possession. If you watch these really good teams, they will find the guy – on defense that they want to get the matchup. I'm not going to quote it, but you know that scene from The Water Boy where they're doing that onside kick <laughs> and the kicker's looking for his guy. You can yeah. look up the clip on YouTube if you want to. But you know what I mean. They, they find that guy and they, they hit that matchup. And, you know, they're running these pick and rolls with Embiid and they're finding the guy that can't guard him. And the Celtics do it with Porzingis. But these teams just analyze their team so well and they just find the best shot for everybody. And they just exploit it like crazy. So it's really fun to see that. But I'm curious what you think about this offensive boom. Yeah, I think in conversations you and I have had, I think the game, I think offense always evolves faster than defense. Yeah. And I think on the defensive end, you're usually in a situation where you're catching up to new offensive patterns or schemes or or systems, however you want to phrase it. I think the defense is always playing catch up a little bit. Uh, and I think we're seeing that play out a little bit. And I think it's like you said, you know, the Golden State Warriors boom there in, you know, from 20, what, 2013 to 2017, maybe yeah. somewhere yeah. in that range. Uh, when the value of the three point shot completely shifted, um, I think you're seeing, I think you're seeing that type of system flourish and almost be perfected now 
Yes. Uh, because, we, you know, you look at the Pacers, they lead the league in points in the paint at almost 57 points a night in the paint. But we're not talking about guys who drive and pull up for a 13 or 14 footer. Uh-huh. It's we get in the paint, we get a lob, we get a dump down, we're getting layups, we're getting dunks, or our paint touch leads to some sort of kick out, ball reversal, and a three. You know, that's what they use the high pick and roll for so much anymore. And, uh, you know, in the past, you wouldn't have ever seen a four or a five set a high ball screen and pop back to the three-point line. Yeah. That's every team in the NBA. And I think what we're seeing now is guys just develop certain skills because that's the commodity that every team seeks. You know, there's so much value and worth in being able to shoot the basketball that I think as the offense evolves and the game changes around that concept, you're going to see some guys come out and have absolutely monster nights. And you're going to see teams like the Pacers score 150 and give up 140. Um, and I think until until oh. coaches put defensive systems together or you begin drafting guys with a defensive mindset you know, to stop someone like Embiid or stop someone like Shea Gilgis Alexander, I think you're going to continue to see offense rule the day. And a little bit, of it, a little bit, I think maybe is the way the the game is is officiated. I think obviously there's a lean a little bit like you know the NFL offense is going to sell tickets, uh, yeah. you know, so they're a little bit quick to throw the flag every now and then. But I and I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing I mean, as far as cleaning the game up and not wanting a whole bunch of physicality, but. You know, at the same time, if that's how you're going to call it and you're going to let these guys like Giannis, you know, be able to barrel through, put their shoulder into somebody with a head start, you're going to continue to see offensive numbers climb. And I think that, you know, like we said, a lot of it has to do with the the evolution of the game offensively. And uh, you touched on the analytical side. I think that that's driven a whole lot of it, too. Absolutely. And I think to go along with it, you talk about drafting certain guys and and you know, analyzing these players, you've seen the end of, not the end of role players, but the end of non-offensive role players. I mean, there was a time where you had two guys that were your scoring options and three guys that had rebounding, defensive, passing roles. Where now you still have the defensive role and the the rebounding role, but you can't have a player on the court that's not an offensive threat anymore. Right. I mean, there were teams where you had, you know, you think of like the, you know, those Knicks teams with Pat Riley, you have like a Charles Oakley or somebody out there. You know, that's the first guy that comes to mind. Dennis Rodman or something. If Dennis Rodman or Charles Oakley played today, they would still be the great rebounding and defenders, but they'd be in a corner knocking down three-point shots. Oh, those Knicks teams, they played three guys that couldn't play outside of 15 feet. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and that's, you know, that's just the way the game's evolved. And you, I, I don't think that those guys wouldn't play today. I think that those guys would be exactly what they were on defense. And they would just be... 36% three-point shooters from the corner. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you just can't be a non-offensive threat because the way the defense is adapted is we just won't guard you. Right. Um, and so if you have a guy that can't shoot, those guys don't play in the fourth <laughs> quarter. And if you have a defensive liability, you can't play them in the fourth quarter because yeah. the team's going to wear them out every possession. They'll get the match if they want. So, I don't know. It's pretty fun. I'd like to think about what those role-playing guys could be um, if they play today, you know, where they would fit into today's game. But, you know, it, it's just fun to think about. But these scoring numbers are just so much fun. And having a night like that, especially on the anniversary of Kobe Bryant scoring 81, and we'll have a little Kobe conversation in a minute. But, 
is pretty exciting. So uh, we've got one more quarter uh, here, Derek, as our buzzer goes off. And this one might ruffle some feathers. I think it's ruffled uh, yours and mine. We're going to talk some of the coaching changes and really one particular coaching change that happened in the NBA this week. And that is the Milwaukee Bucks firing head coach Adrian Griffin halfway through his first season. He had a record when he was fired. I believe the day he got fired, the Milwaukee Bucks record was 30 wins and 12 losses. Um, before we talk about the replacement, what do we think about the uh, term of the, the the, the firing here of Adrian Griffin. I'm stumbling here because I'm, I'm a little bit shocked. But what do we think about the Bucks letting go their head coach halfway through his first year? I don't I, – I try to stay away from a lot of the the news and whether it be the, the talk show politics or whether it be talk show sports. Uh, you know, I'll watch, I'll watch McAfee and some of those guys, but – I've really lost my interest in the morning sports talk show. Just all they do is scream and it kind of wears me out. But I did see a clip of, of Stephen A. Smith talking. They asked him about this deal and kind of what he thought. And I did sort of agree with, with one of his points and just how, again, you pointed out the record. The, the Bucks are 30 and 12. They're 18 games above 500. This is their first season with Damian Lillard on the roster. They've kind of been in and out, hit and miss with Chris Middleton. He seems to finally be getting healthy, but, you know, he hadn't been 100%. And um, for them to be 30-12 and 12 and get rid of their coach, uh, not really a good look. I don't love it, especially at this juncture in the season when your team is playing pretty well and they seem to be – Seem to be clicking a little bit, I guess you could say. Uh, Damian, you know, Lillard and Giannis seem to kind of complement each other, and maybe more so even than what you and I had thought going into the season. Uh, they both seem to really accept the the role that they've got offensively, and they're both okay to share, uh, you know, a piece of the pie, so to speak, or share the keys to the car. And I'm kind of like Stephen A. I don't think it's a good look. You know, there were some things that, that Giannis said a couple of weeks ago in an interview post-game, you know, talking about the way that some of the players felt about the season. And he mentioned the coach and said some things there, kind of threw the coach under the bus. And that's probably something that got this whole ball rolling. Um, I know that they had brought in Doc Rivers to kind of do some um, advisement work and I guess almost assist Adrian Griffin, but it almost feels like there was a plot involved that was like, hey, if we get a whole lot of more backlash in the player, I'm sure there's stuff behind closed doors that nobody knows about. Right. Uh, but how this whole thing played out, you know, that the day after you fire the guy, you're finalizing your contract with Doc Rivers to immediately replace him kind of tells me all we needed to know about what the purpose of bringing Doc Rivers on board to be an advisor really was. Yeah, that's the kind of fishy thing. So, yeah, he's replaced by Doc Rivers, um, which before I heard about the advisor thing, I just thought was crazy. Like, first of all, you had Mike Budenholzer, who won a championship two seasons ago. They don't win last year when Giannis is hurt. Right. And your answer is to fire Mike Budenholzer. I do not understand that. I don't understand that at all. Uh, we talked about how we didn't understand that. And they bring in Adrian Griffin. Who had been rumored to be a guy that was up for a lot of jobs. So I wasn't surprised when Adrian Griffin got the job. 
When you're having a successful season, you have two all-star starters. You are second in the Eastern Conference. And no one expects you to be better than the Celtics. We talked about that, too. The Celtics are the clear best team in the NBA right now. You're doing exceptionally well. You are on a great winning pace. You're on a pace to compete for a championship. And not only do you fire your head coach, you bring in Doc Rivers, who is notorious for underachieving with great teams. Yep. Like he's the, he's the poster child for taking a ton of talent and being a first-round exit or second-round exit. Um, but not only that, then you add in what you're saying here. He's a part of what's going on behind the scenes and it looks like, I mean, clearly there's some fishy stuff going on here. Don't want to speculate. But, man, when he's fired and you're immediately like, yeah, hey, Doc Rivers, we're, we're hiring him now. That's just crazy to me. I mean, there had to be something where the players just really didn't like him or something happened and they had to get rid of him. When you bring in Doc Rivers for that role and then all of a sudden he's immediately your guy, it's a very, very, very fishy situation i don't like it i don't know how doc rivers makes you better i'm not that's not like anything against doc rivers but you just you know he is who he is at this point like you know what doc rivers does he will get you to the playoffs he will get good stuff out of your you know he's a he will get you know good stuff out of your best players but he doesn't seem to be a guy that's really a championship coach he had that one in boston initially and since then, he has completely underachieved with a lot of really, really good yeah. groups. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't like this move at all. Um, the NBA continues to recycle these coaches. Um, and I don't necessarily think that that, you know, wins anything. When you're watching some of the teams that when we talked about this with the Denver Nuggets, when you build the team up, when you're drafting and you build up guys in your system – but those guys also keep those coaches for a long time. Yep. The teams that are constantly shifting coaches, it, it doesn't work. I mean, with the exception of Steve Kerr and Mark Jackson, but what the Warriors did was went out and get a guy that was not one of those recycled head coaches and had new ideas and did and did great things with with a new young group and changed the NBA with it. But, you know, we're seeing the new guys start to take over. M.A. Adoka did what he did in Boston, and now he's doing great things with this group in Houston, Nick Nurse, this guy that had bounced around G Leagues in Europe, they bring him in. And what does he do? He wins a championship with the Toronto Raptors in his first year. And now he's doing stuff in Philadelphia that this team in Philly has not done in the Joel Embiid era. They look better than they have the entire quote-unquote process. So instead of going out and getting these guys that have these new ideas and philosophies and you know guys that are going to be able to adapt with the new talent of this league, you go get another guy that you're just recycling in and out just because he's recognizable and you think he'll be able to keep but what it is is making sure Giannis doesn't leave is having a coach that you know will be will do everything the players want and then Giannis will be happy and he won't budge. So I don't know. That's how that's how it feels, kinda of like how maybe this thing played out based on the comments that Giannis made referring to the coach. Uh, I think it's 100% an, an appeasement for the players uh, versus any sort of indictment on Adrian Griffin as a coach. Because I think, you know, 30 and 12 in your first season, when you're talking about bringing in Damian Lillard to that squad, 
and you know your first year as a head coach, and you inherit the team that he inherited with the expectations that they had, and you know you and I were both on the same team as far as thinking that Boston was the clear-cut favorite, and you've got you know Milwaukee in position to be the two seed. More than likely, they're going to be a top three seed regardless in the Eastern Conference, just based on talent alone. But I just the optics, the optics of it at this point in the season just don't look very good from their perspective to me. Um, and you know, it'll be it'll be a wait and see thing. Can Doc Rivers get this team over the hump? I guess so to speak. You know, is there something that he can do that maybe Griffin wasn't doing that puts them in position to beat Boston? You know, we'll see. We'll wait. You know, this is going to be a Probably one of those decisions that your opinion will be formulated once the playoffs come and we get a little bit into that to see what Milwaukee looks like to, to make our final decision. But I'm like you. I don't love it. Yeah, I don't, uh, as a uh, buzzer goes off there, but I, I don't love it either. I, I don't understand what you see in Doc Rivers that – thinks he's going to lead you to a championship other than he just seems like he, he swindled old Adrian Griffin and the uh, Milwaukee Bucks. Um, and I hate to be that way because I like I always kind of had respect for Doc Rivers. Well, and how about right now Milwaukee has three coaches on their payroll. Wow. They are, three. They are still paying Budenholzer. Oh, wow. They are still paying oh, yeah, Griffin. They are still paying Griffin, and now they're paying Doc Rivers. So they are paying wow. three head coaches at the moment. That is interesting. Well, hopefully, you know, they, if they win a championship, I guess it, it all makes sense. Then we'll be all eating our words, but I'm not so sure about it. Yeah. Um, so we're going to actually have a, an overtime segment here. Um, and I love that you presented this idea to me. Uh, and we'll take, you know, just a couple minutes to, to discuss this, but... Tomorrow will be the four-year anniversary yep. of the tragic loss of the great Kobe Bryant. Um, I remember vividly that day. I remember how big of a Kobe fan I always was my entire life. So I kind of wanted to chit-chat um, about that with you. And, I, and this is, I mean, this was your idea to, to, to talk about this, but um, I'd kind of like to get your thoughts on, on that, why you wanted to discuss that, and, and maybe have a, you know, a brief Kobe conversation. Yeah, I just it's one of those deals that, you know, with the, with us talking basketball and uh, across all spectrums, Kobe's one of the all-time greats to step on a court and to, to play the game and just thought, you know, by the obviously it's uh the 25th, but by the time we we get this up and get it posted and get it shared, it will be uh January 26th, which will be the 4-year anniversary. And just something to touch on just to talk about the the impact that he had on the game and um how much you and I both enjoyed watching him play. I got the the chance to go see him play one time up in Indianapolis against the Pacers. And it's just one of those deals that it was toward the tail end of his career, but you just, it's something that you remember because of who it is. Um, And the one thing that I admire and respect about Kobe a whole lot is um, he had a little bit of, of Michael Jordan's mentality in the sense that if I'm healthy and I'm not injured, there are people paying hard-earned good money to come see me play, and I'm yep. going to play. Uh, yes. And, you know, I think the the track record of, of the injuries that Kobe dealt with late in his careers is well documented. But, uh, you know, the fact that he was still willing every night he was, he was able, you know, to be out there on the floor. Because Indianapolis for a long time, obviously not so much now, there's a little bit more national notoriety. 
Um, but playing against the Pacers oftentimes became a night where some of the stars would sit. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the tail end of Kobe's career was one where load management became a thing, and he never bought into it. And that, that's something I always, always thought was cool. Uh, I'm like you. I can remember, you know, I was watching uh, I was watching Indiana play Maryland at home on TV. They had a noon game. It was a Sunday. And I remember sitting on the couch and watching the game and started getting text messages and then started checking Twitter and uh, obviously found out the tragic news that, that Kobe and his, his daughter and those other people on the helicopter had passed going to a basketball tournament. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, just with the anniversary coming up, it felt like something maybe that we, that we should mention, just, just talk about for a second. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I remember it in seeing a thing pop up like a TMZ report. And before I got a message from anybody, I saw that pop up somewhere on my phone on it, like a Twitter, you know what I mean? Yeah. How, you know, you get some notification. And, you know, especially with it being a TMZ report, I kind of thought this was something silly. Like, I, you know, right. when I thought that I was like, because the story itself, Kobe Bryant, you know, dies in a helicopter crash. I was kind of like, that's just... I mean, I kind of wrote it off for a second. I'm like, okay, sure. And then I got some texts, and then I got Twitter all of a sudden started blowing up with it. But nothing had been confirmed just yet. And so I'm like, this cannot possibly be a real thing. Like, there's something that's going to come out, and Kobe's going to make a statement and be like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> um, but when that um, came to fruition, and that was really what happened, that was like probably the most stunned I had been. Um, in terms of a celebrity, I mean, usually a celebrity passing is not something I spend too much time thinking about. Right. You, know, you, you hear it sometimes it's sad if it's a person that you enjoyed watching in whatever field they were in. But this was like to the point it was devastating. And I le- like legitimately, I took the day off work the next day. Like I was actually like it. It seems like funny to say that, but it, it really kind of floored me because it was just a very wild situation. And it wasn't like a, hey this person's sick and it's something we should expect. Right. Just this out of nowhere thing. And Kobe Bryant is probably the reason, the biggest reason why I love basketball the way I do, because the first NBA game I really sat down and watched full length. I watched a Laker game. He had 33 points. I remember he was 11, 11, 11 from the free throw line. And I was just like, this guy's my guy. I got everything Kobe that I could get. You know, I, I had that that documentary that he got with Spike Lee. So good work. It's so good. It's it's really fun. Um, I think we showed that to a Salem team once. Yeah, part of it. Yeah, yeah, we yeah we we had them watch that, and it was just great commentary and just a brilliant mind. Everything I could get from that guy, I, I wanted to do. You know, do just like him on a court, or you know, learn from him when he would talk or catch his games, and so for that to be what happened to be a guy that I consider to be my favorite player you know, of all time at that point, really, uh, floored me for sure. And so uh, I'm glad we're talking about it a little bit. And, and so that it's not super somber, I kind of just want to ask, what's your what's your favorite or a couple favorite Kobe moments? Do you oh, have man. a couple favorites or your all-time favorite? Getting to see him play was cool. Um, yeah. And, again, I appreciate the fact right now that the Pacers are, are good and competitive, have, have guys that you can get behind and support. Uh, right. But gosh, I can go into that game and the number of Laker jerseys and Kobe jerseys yeah. in yeah. the stands. I mean, it essentially was it was I greater than a fifty fifty split. It was if it was sixty forty, 
Lakers to Pacers, I would be I may be lowballing that. Uh, Kobe's coming out party in the 2000 Finals against the Pacers uh, when he kind of willed that team to victory in Game Five in Indianapolis. Uh, and the, the 81-point performance, they always do the anniversary showing on NBA TV. I always watch it. I've got it recorded. Um, it's great when the Hoosiers are getting their tail kicked to go and actually watch somebody that is playing good basketball. Uh, <clears throat> but I, the 81-point game stands out, and um, the fact that Kobe was robbed one season of an MVP that should have been his that Steve Nash got, but we'll talk about that at a later date. Um, but I think they're just the run that he had offensively for those couple of years, you know, when he was the best player in the league and the best player in the world for a period of time. And maybe my easily top three Kobe moment, I don't, I don't want to rank them necessarily, but a top three Kobe moment would be the four point play he had against Spain in the 2008, oh, yeah. in the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. Uh, he hit a dagger three and got fouled where Spain was making a little bit of a run to make that gold medal game interesting. And the best player in the world did what the best player in the world does. And he buried the three, got fouled and held the finger up to shush the crowd. And that kind of was the, the grand announcement that team USA was back. Absolutely. Absolutely. What are, what, are, um, what do you got? So maybe for favorite moments, I became after I had watched him. I was like in junior high when I really started getting into it. It was definitely because I watched I watched Kobe in that in that first game. So I have to count that just because I I uh, you know that kind of started it for me. But there was a run where my brothers and I always sat down and watched the NBA Finals every game of it for you know for several years, um, and. When they played the Orlando Magic, my brother at the time really, really liked Dwight Howard and had a okay. Dwight Howard jersey, you know, just because he was y- younger and Dwight Howard was in a lot of kids' commercials. He was I in. cannot wait to talk to your brother about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got, his opinion has changed. <laughs> you know, he's a kid in elementary school who Dwight Howard wears the Superman cape at yeah. the dunk contest. He's in commercials and stuff, and so... He's all in. I'm like, hey, this guy's this guy's pretty cool. You know, he's you know a guy that kids can really rap. You know, kind of like you know want to see on television. So I, I'm a huge Kobe fan, and so they have the the Magic and Lakers NBA Finals in 2009, and they win the finals in in five games. And the first game, Kobe had 40, and they destroy the Magic. So I remember that vividly just being like the year before they had lost to Boston. And I remember like just knowing that there was all these stories about how Kobe was just like just going after it even harder because he had yeah. got there. He lost to the Celtics. There's the talk, you know, it's constant the talk. He needs somebody to help him out. He can't, you know, Shaquille O'Neal's running his mouth about he can't do it without him. Right. And to get to the finals and not only they win the finals, but that first game just to, I mean, Put his, you know, put his foot on their throat. Yeah. You know, just to announce it, like there's no way in the world you're beating it. And then, you know, next year they go and they beat the Celtics. But um, that first finals where he has, you know, I pulled it up to look. I, he had 40 in that first game. I knew that, but then he's got, you know, three straight 30 point games in those in those last three games. I mean, he just closed them out. Yeah. And 
that's what he was for that stretch of time. He was the best player. He was the best closer. You know, he took. You know, we always think about how, about him being the guy hitting a bunch of game winners, and really, he misses a ton of game winners in in his lifetime. You know, like it, he missed yeah. a bunch. But you knew he was getting the ball, and every time, I'm thinking that ah, it's going down. Yeah. You know, every time he got the ball, I just thought he was going down. Um, my biggest Kobe regret is I tuned into the final game against the Jazz. I'm sure you did too. Hundred uh, percent. I fell asleep after the third quarter. I, I just, was. Uh, I was wide awake in my. I think I was throwing things in my living room at one point watching that. Uh, I I woke up post game and the little ticker going across the yep. ESPN screen said sixty. And I thought I was going to cry. Like <laughs> I was on the couch and watched this game and just nod off there in the fourth quarter when Gordon Hayward allegedly is letting Kobe score. No, I'm just kidding. Like they. He has sixty in the final game. Like he just had so many games like that where he he scores that many points, or you just know he's closing it out. But those finals that he won, and he's got a good team around him. But really, he's the guy taking yeah. it over. You know, there's those jokes about you know LeBron built this team so he could beat the Celtics, and these guys built the team to beat LeBron. But really, all that started just so they could beat Kobe. You right. know, like all these guys built super teams just because. Nobody could stop, right? Kobe, Kobe, who didn't need that. So I don't know. It's, um, it's really sad to think about, but I know you and I have a lot of great memories watching that guy, and uh, you know I think he was doing a lot of good stuff for the game after yeah. he retired. But yeah, he was really still, yes, for sure. If you can go back and watch somebody and teach it, there's no one more fundamental and no one more competitive. Oh, if you can find the the videos on footwork and. Oh yeah, all that stuff that he has out there on YouTube. If you're a young kid, if you're elementary, middle school, high school, you know, go to YouTube, type in Kobe Bryant footwork. He's got a bunch of videos. He breaks stuff down, you know, pivots and spin moves and and stuff that you kind of take for granted as a player. And you think, hey, this is this is something that I can kind of skate through. And it's the meticulous nature at which he went about just every little detail of the game. There wasn't anything that he didn't practice and work on and fine tune. It's one of those deals like, uh, you know, you don't practice until you get it right. You practice until you can't get it wrong. And I think he epitomizes that statement. And absolutely. I will be wearing my Kobe shirt tomorrow to school. And, uh, Again, you know, it's just it's a it's a fun conversation to have. Again, being this far removed, obviously, it's it's a tragedy, and a tragic yeah. incident. And you know, anytime you talk about a loss of life and somebody that was uh, impacting people on a on a large scale like that, it's obviously not good. But uh, to be able to look back at, at stuff like that still fondly um, after the fact and have conversations and, and reminisce about memories and games and stuff like that, it's still fun because. Uh, one of the best to ever do it. And I think anytime you get a chance to have that kind of conversation, it's enjoyable. Absolutely. And I honor him every time I throw a paper rod into a trash can at work. (laughs) 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 We're going to take a a pause for a second and come back. And we're going to discuss the upcoming NBA trade deadline. All right. Welcome back for a final segment here on the Pick Fence podcast. We have an upcoming trade deadline that is already kind of getting hot. We talked about the Pascal Siakam trade and the Indiana Pacers. Um, OG Ananobi has made his way to the New York Knicks, which I think is a fantastic move. 
um, and I think makes the Knicks so much better and, and even uh, you know more of a contender in the Eastern Conference. But there's a lot of talk for some big-name players that are going to be on the move. Um, I kind of want to talk to you, Derek, about some trades you'd like to see happen, some things you might you know, think could happen, um, some of these teams on the fringe that may make themselves a lot better. Um, in the coming weeks as we head towards the deadline. So I kind of like to exchange some ideas here uh, and talk about some things that um, maybe we would like to see happen or at least um, we think some of these teams should make. I, I know that you know none of the front offices have contacted us yet. Um, uh, about <laughs> maybe they should. I feel like we should start should. having conversations. I'm going to send them some papers. If you're going to start talking to Matt Painter and – We'll just, That's right. I, yeah, I'm gonna say if I'm talking to Painter, we'll start throwing our resumes around to people. We've 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 seen enough. Yeah, we've we've had some really really great takes on here, and, and I don't know why we haven't got those responses. I yet, mean, but. evaluators of talent were a good time to have around. Absolutely, you know, we've got great stories. <laughs> like, it's just, I don't think we've I don't think we've once been wrong in any segment uh, we've had. We're undefeated. Most would say, absolutely. It's like uh, they say about good shooters. You don't remember. You don't remember the misses, right? Your short term memory. No, no short term gotta... memory podcast. No, we just fire it off again. That's right. Right, ready right to kick <laughs> So I'm curious. What teams do you think? We'll, we'll, maybe we'll go well back and forth here. Um, is there a team that you'd like to see make a move? Uh, maybe a maybe a trade that you're cooking up here that you think should happen or something you think is, is dire for one of these teams. So well, the I'll team, let you kick it off with your first team here. Yeah, the team that everybody talks about, at least um, I think a lot of it's driven by the players currently on their roster, namely one. Um, but I think the Lakers are a team that are going to almost be forced into making a deal uh, because of LeBron, because of AD. Their window is closing quickly. Uh, you know, this is LeBron's 20th All-Star game. Uh, and he's definitely not getting any younger. And for the most part, you know, outside of the the bubble championship that they got in 2020, you know, his time in L.A. to a certain degree has been a little bit wasted. Some of that you can attribute to A.D. being injured. Um, but I think a large part of it you can really attribute to roster construction and the pieces that, that they've put around him. So I think the Lakers are going to be backed into a corner and forced to make a deal. I don't know. Bruce Brown is a name that continues to get thrown around. I don't think he stays in Toronto. Uh, I think he ends up going to a contender or at least a team that's going to put themselves in position to be a contender. The Lakers would fit that mold. I think he would be a good piece in L.A. Uh, and then you and I have talked a little bit about Zach Levine and, and where he may end up. And I think, I think his trade value seems to be diminishing. It's probably not what you and I thought it would be. Uh, given his still level of athleticism and level of talent, what he can bring to to an NBA roster. Uh, but I think those two guys for the Lakers, um, I would I would have serious interest in. And the other name that seems to be fairly popular in the Lakers trade talks is Duante Murray from Atlanta. Yeah. Uh, if you're the Lakers, I think you've probably got to wonder about what you have to give up to get these guys. You know, can you package some future draft picks? Can you package some young guys? Uh, the one I saw was talking about if they were to trade for Murray, would they have to give up Reeves? Uh, yeah. You know, so that's a conversation. But I think the, the Lakers jump off the page at me as a team that's going to be forced into making a deal. I think that's obvious. It's just going to be a matter of who and what role do they want this guy to fill. 
Yeah, absolutely. The Lakers jump off the page for me, and I have them first as well. So here's here's what I'm proposing. So I've got a team right now that I think is about to make some moves, and that's the Atlanta Hawks, and that's DeJounte Murray, uh, same guy you mentioned here. So the New York Knicks were in on DeJounte, and the story today was that the asking price for DeJounte is too high, and the Knicks aren't going to make a move there. So I, I have two options here for the Atlanta Hawks. One okay. of them is the Los Angeles Lakers. They send, you know, I don't know all the picks they could get sent around. I don't necessarily, you know, we don't necessarily have the the knowledge of the the front office cap space and, and picks they have to deal with. And we can. I don't know that. why they won't let us look at their books, but they should. I don't either. I've I've emailed Rob Palinka just a, a, an unbelievable amount of times and heard nothing. Um, maybe I need to take. Maybe it needs to be Jeannie Bus. Maybe um, if I email Jeannie. We could probably sure, get get in with Brad Stevens. He's from Indiana. Yeah, you know, I could send Brad an email. I think, I think he would appreciate our input. I think he would too. Brad's a good guy. <laughs> uh, but with the Hawks, I like them to to send Murray to the Lakers for Austin Reeves, and I think that's a move that happens. Like I really think that's the guy they'll go get. It seems like things have cooled off on Levine. That was the yeah. guy early in the year. They right. said, "Hey, it's going to be Zach." Um, which, interesting enough, side note to that. The rumor that's picked up about Zach Levine is that he gets sent to Detroit. Um, it's, it's, it just sounds weird. It just sounds very weird. But that is the big rumor the past couple of days is that Detroit is seeing what that looks like. Okay. But I like the Lakers to go get um, DeJounte Murray for Austin Reeves um, from Atlanta. Or Atlanta really wants to send... Uh, DeJounte somewhere. I think they're hesitant to trade Trey Young. There's always Trey trade talks, but I don't think it's happening. The other one I'd like to see Atlanta may pull the trigger on is sending DeJounte Murray in some sort of package with the Brooklyn Nets to get Mikael Bridges. Okay. So if Mikael comes to Atlanta, you know, what we could put some different pieces in there and, you know, Atlanta could send a couple things and Brooklyn could send a couple things back. But I think if Atlanta could send DeJounte to Brooklyn and Mikael Bridges back to Atlanta with whatever package they can fit around that. I don't think that's a bad move. I think you and I, obviously, I think we're both in agreement that uh, the Lakers have got to do something here as we approach the trade deadline. I think it's just a matter of what they do and who they want to go and get. Yeah, I agree. They, they've got to do something. Um, I think Murray would be an interesting deal. The other guy I'd like to see them maybe – throw something at is maybe Austin Reeves, who seems to be the guy they're gonna trade, or D'Angelo yeah. Russell has been in the mix. I don't know yeah. what the um I don't know what the D'Angelo Russell market is, but maybe Good if it, you can't get Murray, maybe you send Reeves to Portland for uh Malcolm Brogdon. I feel okay. like that would be an interesting Malcolm Brogdon's been kind of tied to the Lakers the past couple of years. Okay. So it'd be interesting. Um how about your next team? Is there a team on the bubble or a team you'd like to see make a move? Uh, maybe not so much a team, but you know the, the player that we could talk about. I think is Bruce Brown. Uh, All right. And <clears throat> obviously, I think you know coming off a championship last year with the Nuggets, signing a, a pretty big deal with the Pacers in the off season. I don't know that it was something anticipated him being traded away from Indiana this quickly. But if you're the Pacers, you have to take advantage of of bringing in somebody like Pascal Siakam. But it seems as if from everything I've read looking at the trade deadline that Bruce Brown could potentially be on the move again, that Toronto may not be his stopping point. And for his sake, I kind of hope it isn't just because I do like, I like Bruce Brown as a player and I, I like to see guys go to situations where they can be successful. Uh, I would not mind to see Denver bring him back. 
Uh, yeah, I yeah, I agree with that for sure. And I'm kind of on that train right now that I would like to see Denver make some kind of an offer um, and kind of go, you know, chips on the table. Let's run this thing back one more time. Bring him in. It gives you added value off the bench. You know what you're getting, and he fits into that system because he knows the system. It's not like you're bringing in a guy that is brand new to the team or anything like that. He fits. He knows his role in the roster. He's played with those guys. He's got the experience. I think it, it would make sense to me, and I would like to see him go back to Denver. Completely agree. Um, it seems like that maybe it won't be a trade that Bruce Brown might be in that buyout market. Okay. Um, which I think would be a perfect situation if Denver doesn't have to give anything up. Right. And they they can buy him out. I, I don't. I mean, that's to me is the perfect situation for Denver and Bruce Brown. But if he gets bought out, I can see where there'd be a big market for yeah Bruce Brown for sure. Um, I'm going to bring up a team here, and I've got a couple scenarios here for them. So I have the Philadelphia 76ers, who are in the East right now, and right on the cusp of being that team people think are going to make a run. They've got Boston and Milwaukee ahead of them. So some guys on their roster, um, Robert Covington uh, is a guy they acquired recently, but is in talks to maybe not be on that roster again. Marcus Morris and... Perkin Korkmaz are some players that are being thrown around in those trade talks. Zach Levine was a guy early in the year, again, Philadelphia was tied to, but that's cooled off again. So I'm throwing out a couple scenarios. Go back to the Atlanta Hawks. Um, A package, one of those players, a couple of those players, and some picks to send to Atlanta for Bogdan Bogdanovich, kind of that backup point guard they've got in Atlanta who's a sharpshooter. Another one is to send a couple of those guys to Chicago. Not for Zach Levine, but for Alex Caruso Okay. to go to Philadelphia. And my final one is a combination of Morris and Covington or, you know, those three guys or one of those guys and some picks to the Charlotte Hornets for Gordon Hayward. Okay. I think Philly needs depth. And one of those three guys to me is perfect because I think they have the starting lineup pretty much locked in. Nicholas Batum is now a part of the 76ers, and he's worked his way into the starting group. Yeah. Caruso, Bogdanovich, and Hayward. I think those guys, one of those three, or maybe even, you know, there's talks of a Hayward buyout. If they could trade for somebody and then, you know, pick up Hayward after the buyout, um, that would be the depth. And I think the right kind of depth that they need. I don't think they need to go make a big splash. You know, I don't think they need to go get, um, you know, somebody that's, you know, on one of these tankings, you know, go out and make a big deal. But some of these guys just depth some guys are going to bring defense or just some extra shooting off the bench and some experience i think would be huge come playoff time and one of those three guys i think would would fit in perfectly i love the idea of caruso being there yeah uh, but i don't like hayward being on a team that's really good where he can be that role that he was trying to be when he was in boston um, but i think he'd fit in perfect with that group so i think philly needs to make a move because i think they just need a little more depth and one of those three guys they've all been names tied to philadelphia and I think Hayward Caruso or Bogdanovich would be perfect for them right now. Well, and at this juncture in his career, I think that's a really good fit for Gordon Hayward. Absolutely. I think he would fit into that into that roster pretty well. Um, you know, he'd be a guy coming in with no ego that just is simply there to 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 do a job and to put himself in a, in a chance to to go to the finals and win a title. So I think that that makes a little bit of sense. Um, I do think I like that. I like that concept. Philly probably does need to do something. 
um, if they're going to put themselves in position to, to really contend in the East. The other thing I wrote down to kind of counter your Philly point was Boston. Okay. And just simply from the standpoint of do they want to – this is, again, hypothetical, but do they want to go and acquire some added depth to their roster? Uh and a guy that I would look at for them um, is actually from the San Antonio Spurs, and I would think like somebody like a City Os- Osman. Oh yeah, I like that. Uh, you know, San Antonio is not going to do anything this year. They may not be worth much for the next couple of years until they can really get their roster right uh, and put the pieces that they need to around Wimby. But a guy like him that you could bring in, who's had a pretty decent role in San Antonio. To bring him into that system in Boston, have him come off the bench to be an added, you know, big wing player, you know, to give him some defensive responsibility, but a guy who can also put the ball in the hole and do his fair share of scoring too, because he's uh, he's had some nights where he can he can go and he's played on a couple of different rosters. I think the the Cavs come to mind when he was there as being a guy that was relied on to score a little bit, uh, you know, so he could be a guy in that second unit for Boston that could really change things for them. Absolutely. I like that. I've heard his name thrown around. I think he would be a guy that someone who's a contender, Boston, Milwaukee, Philly, or like Los Angeles, or maybe even Denver, one of those contenders, he's a guy that fits in flawlessly. He comes off the bench, he hits shots, he plays, you know, maybe not a a huge amount of minutes, but he's a guy I think that thrives in a situation like that and not necessarily in a rebuilding place. He's a player that I don't think is a part of a rebuild. Um, So I love that one. So I've got another on the fringe contender for you. Okay. A team that I think has some available draft picks in the future. Not a ton because they've made some deals. But the Phoenix Suns need um, maybe just that that glue guy piece. We've talked about that. Where they've got a ton of these ISO scores, and they might just need that guy. And they don't quite have... um, a roster that looks like a championship roster because they're just a little bit quirky. Um, I I like Phoenix. I think that they could be a team that makes a run. Uh, but here's what I think. I think if they had some picks and maybe a guy they could throw out, um, you know, some of these guys that come off the bench, uh, you know, like a Josh Kogi who's kind of bounced around. Um, they've got, you know, Nurkic, who I'm not sure about, um, being a guy that's, Super consistent. They've got some young guys who come off the bench too. Nasir Little, who's bounced around a minute. The Bates Diop kid from the Spurs, who's bounced around. Um, but I would like to see Phoenix maybe throw a couple pieces if they have available picks and they've got some to the Chicago Bulls and go get Andre Drummond. Yeah. Okay. I'm I with think you. Andre Drummond is, you know, they, they maybe need that big who isn't going to take a lot of shots. Um, Nurkic is doing pretty well. I mean, he's played in a lot of the games. He's he's averaging about a double-double right now. But even if it's not in a starting spot, but just to have some of that depth with size, I mean, you're going to have to win in the West. You're going to have to go through Anthony Davis and Nikola Jokic um, if the Lakers end up being in the playoffs. But, you know, I assume that they'll probably make it there. Um, but you're going to have to go through some of these bigs to make it there. And I think having some of the depth in size is uh, not a bad idea for a Western Conference team who's trying to win a championship. So I'd like the idea of having Andre Drummond. Maybe he's not a starter. Um, I'm sure Chicago would not be, you know, not have a huge asking price. They're trying to dump a lot of stuff. So right. I'd like to see maybe Andre Drummond end up at Phoenix. I think that would look interesting. 
Yeah, and Phoenix, the way their roster is constructed, they really are like some college teams. They don't necessarily need their big man to be somebody that's going to be heavily reliant to go score the basketball because they have enough of that uh, across the rest of their their lineup with Durant and Booker and, and Beal. Uh, but to have Drummond in there, who's a guy that's going to he, – he walks around. He wakes up with 12 rebounds. Uh, <clears throat> so, you know, for them to be able to do that and kind of maybe even solidify their, their post, it, you know, uh, Phoenix is probably a team you and I could both talk about it at length, but I don't think that them making a move would be a bad thing at all uh, just to, to better their roster because they're – they're kind of on the fringe outside looking in when you think about the Western Conference and teams getting talked about. I feel like they should probably get more attention than what they are. Uh, yeah. Everybody seems to you know really focus in on on Denver, and uh, you know maybe Phoenix needs to do something to reiterate that they're still in the conversation of a Western Conference contender. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I got one more. Do you have another one? No, I'm going to let you roll. Okay, I got. I've got. A question for you, and then I've got a scenario. So I'm gonna give you a scenario first. Okay. The Sacramento Kings have have some upcoming um, draft picks available, and there are some of these teams that aren't very good or looking at dump. And I'm talking Washington Wizards and Detroit Pistons. I like the idea of the Kings maybe sending some picks, maybe a guy off the bench for Kyle Kuzma from the Washington Wizards. I think he would be a, another guy that would just fit in with the the offensive spacing and then the the ball movement and shooting culture that Sacramento has built, and and or sending some future draft picks to the Detroit Pistons for another Bogdanovich, Bojan Bogdanovich, former Pacer, uh, the Detroit Pistons. I think one of those two guys in Sacramento as they're trying to they're get they're healthy now they're starting to roll again, bringing in just a couple more guys that just fit into what they're looking for, and they've just got the depth that can compete with some of these veteran teams that have depth in the Western Conference. I just like the idea of one of those two guys being in Sacramento. I just think it's perfect for one of those two guys. Um, I think the teams we've mentioned are teams that are in the middle of the fight here that need to go make a big move. Um, or maybe not a huge move, but just that, that move that maybe puts them over the hump. So right. I think the Kings would be interesting if they went and grabbed somebody like that. Yeah, and, you know, you mentioning Phoenix, obviously they have more firepower as far as how their ro- who who is on their roster, so they get more attention. Uh, Sacramento, I mean, really kind of announced their presence last year um, in the run that they made. The fact that they're so incredibly young, I think, makes them a whole lot of fun. They've got really good pieces, and I don't disagree. I think that that, that Sacramento is kind of in a similar boat to Phoenix in that they are probably a team that needs to make a move if they want to really make the next step. Um, and I guess it depends on how aggressive you want to be this season versus playing the longer game and seeing how this season shakes out and then getting into the off season. But, uh, they are Sacramento still a piece or two away. Um, and maybe that's a role player. Maybe that's getting some, some veterans in your system, but the idea of bringing in one of those guys, I think is a pretty good idea. I think Kuzma would fit, um, and, would and I think I think Bogdanovich would absolutely fit too because he's been he's been a really key role player on every team he's been in minus this stint here in Detroit uh, with yeah. him just simply not being very good. But the years with him and the Pacers uh, when he was in Utah 
and they were competitive, and they had a really good. They had some good records out there when he was with them. Uh, I think it. I think it would be a good fit, and it could be a piece that maybe the Kings are missing right now. Absolutely. Um, the question I have for you here: Do you think the Warriors make a move? Do you think Draymond Green's out of Golden State? I did see Grant Hill left Draymond Green off the. Uh, pool of players for Team USA. Yeah, I saw that too. So he will not be going to Team USA camp. I'm very curious to know what the path is for Draymond and you know what his value is going to be moving forward. If you're Golden State, I don't hate the move because to me you've brought in Trace Jackson Davis who has shown to be equally if not more valuable at this point. As far yes. as his contributions, uh, do I, I don't think they do it this season, though. Yeah, I don't know if it's this season. It seems like it might be an off-season part. I don't know if they would do that with him necessarily. Um, I do see them probably trading the Kaminga kid. Um, Toronto seems to be a team that's super interested in him. Yeah. The big rumor is that Dallas would trade for Draymond Green, but I, don't, I agree with you. I don't know if they do it mid-season with a guy like Draymond who's meant so much to the team. Yeah, I think that that's probably not a breakup that you do in the middle of the season. I'm like you. I think that's one where you don't – I don't know if you get a, a quote-unquote, you know, farewell, you know, big screen, here's my homage, here's the video board and all that stuff. I don't know that you do you do that. But I think that there probably needs to be some sort of recognition. If you're going to really think about, about parting ways, uh, I think you do that after the season – for sure. For sure. For sure. Well, I'm excited to see what happens here with the uh, trade deadline. I think there's going to be some huge moves. I think we'll have some really big shakeups. There always is yeah. every year. Um, if you think there are some trades that, that you would like to see or some a team we missed out on, please tweet us, comment on Facebook or Instagram at PicketFence underscore pod, the PicketFence podcast on uh, Instagram and Facebook. Check us out on Spotify. We've got a lot of great episodes, great coaching interviews. Uh, and other great discussions. Um, thanks for joining in with us. We'll be here within the next uh, two weeks to talk about the trade deadline and the all-star game. And as always here on the Picket Fits podcast, don't, don't get, get caught, caught watching the paint, watching the paint. dry. <laughs>